Welcome to Evangel Church. Our mission is to bring people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at evangelchurch.com. If you have your Bible, would you open with me to Matthew chapter 5. I think we're putting our hope in the wrong places, church. I think that we're not seeing sometimes the breakthrough we've been praying for because we're putting our hope in the wrong place. We're not seeing things change because we're putting our hope in all the wrong places. Some of you, you, you're leaning more on the outcome of this election to solve the issues in this world more than on the cross of Christ. Some of you are going to find more hope in an elected official. He's the hope of the world. We become the hope of the world because we're his church. We're his body. I said it in, it's not in my notes, so maybe I can't get in trouble if I say it. I didn't write it. I think that we, this, is, this has been a tense election season. We're building towards Tuesday's election. It's tense. And I said it in first service and I will say it again that I'm, I'm worried, church, that we have been awakened to issues. We've been awakened to just how serious, I believe, the hour that we're living in. I think that that's what you're feeling. People that don't even know God, they're realizing how much is at stake in this season. And I just have a question for you. Are you going to be as passionate on November 9th as you are before November 8th? Are you going to continue to champion the things that are close to God's heart after it's out of the spotlight and everyone isn't talking about it anymore? Are you still going to stand for the things that are close to God's heart even when everyone else is gone regardless of the outcome of this election? I think that we put so much of our hope in leaders that are going to be raised up, that they're going to solve all the issues that are facing our society. We know what's going on. We realize what's at stake. But I want to tell you, when God's looking to the answer, it is not someone's name that is on the ballot. The answer is the church, the people of God. It's us. We, he said, if my people, he didn't say my politicians, he didn't say anyone, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and begin to seek my face again, then I'm going to hear from heaven. I'm going to heal their land. I'll even forgive their sins. And I want you to know that what's even more important than your vote, I don't care if the only person in this country saying it, is your prayers. Because I want to tell you that your vote will affect the outcome of an election in the next four years and maybe generations, but your prayers impact eternity. I want to tell you that God says this, and this is what I'll say, and some of you are going to see this statement. I want you to hear it. No matter who's in control, God's in control. <laughs> no matter who's in control, God's in control. And God's in control of who's in control. And when I say that, it's because this, because the heart of the king, the Bible says, is in the hands of the Lord. He can move it like the waters. But it's what, what's that contingent on? When God's people pray, he hears us. He said that he makes this statement. He makes this if then. If you do this, then I'll do that. And so don't look to them to heal our land. They can't heal our land. Regardless of what happens, no one can heal our land like God can heal our land. No one can bring revival back. But God himself and the people of God walking in the Holy Spirit and in what God is doing and desires to do in this day. And I want to tell you that I just, I, I believe what we do 
in the church and in what we've been doing in this season, I think we want to abdicate our responsibility to leaders. We want to just elect leaders that are going to carry it out and then we can sit back and watch. And I want you to know, church, we're being activated for such a time as this because God's reminding us in this season, if nothing else, that it's on you. (laughs) It's not on them, it's on you. If my people would take this seriously, if they'll pray and they'll seek my face, then I'm going to hear from heaven. I want you to know the greatest hope isn't going to come through any name that we see on any sign. It's going to be the banner of Jesus Christ flying across this land again. And it'll be the church. It'll be the people of God being who we've been created to be. Two people agree with me. It's all right. It's all right. I might lose some of you today. It's okay. This is it. This is it. And it's so vitally important. So will you pray? Tomorrow night, will you join us in here and will you pray? Yes, good. I got a few more people than first service. They might not have been awake yet. We're going to gather together in here. We're going to call down heaven. We're going to do what God's word says because we believe that's the greatest hope for our nation, that we believe that's the greatest hope. And we have seen and trust that God is moving. He's moving here. He's moving. He's on the move. Um, I had time this last week. I was with a few of our leaders here uh, from our church, and I was able to be in Washington, D.C. just a few days ago. I was able to stand steps from our capital, and I've seen the history. I could see what's going on there in, in the years that have gone by and the generations that have come to pass. But you know what it reminded me of? Such a sense that this is a kingdom that was established. This was a place that was built just a few lifetimes ago. But I'm a part of a kingdom that is eternal. And regardless of what's happening here, regardless of who sits in the Oval Office, there's been a lot of people that have sat there. There's only been one person on the throne that entire time. And he isn't going anywhere on November 9th. He isn't going anywhere next year. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we just must look to him first. We must remember that our citizenship is first in the kingdom of God. And so I want to tell you that we have dual citizenship. I want to remind you of that before we get into anything else in the word. I want to remind you that what that means is that there are values of the kingdom of God, values that are close to the heart of God. And I want you to know that you have a responsibility as an American citizen to vote. That's a part of the freedom that we have. People lay down their lives so we can allow our voice to be heard and we can speak and share and speak up and stand. And we'll talk a lot about what that means today to stand in the world that that that's what God has called and created us to do as disciples. But I want you to know your first citizenship, your first responsibility, your first allegiance is not to any flag, it's to the cross, it's to Christ. As to what he is before you're a Democrat, Republican, Independent, anyone, only, only one person agrees with me here. You've got to hear it because it's very true. If you believe God's word to be true, you've been transferred into a new kingdom. Jesus is your Lord. Doesn't matter who's your president. Jesus is your Lord. He's your Savior. He's on his throne. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's above all. And so you need to understand, Lord, what issues matter most to your heart in this election. You need to understand the issues. Don't vote ignorantly and don't vote just because of of some affiliation you've walked with because the lines are blurring. They're changing. There's a great shuffling and mixing. There will be more people to vote. It will be a surprise to everyone on Wednesday morning. What happens? But regardless of what happens, my hope isn't found in that. My hope is found in Christ first. And because of that, though, I'm very aware of of, of how I need to pray, um, what, how I will vote, the things that matter in this world. It's part of what I believe my, my responsibility as a child of God and as a citizen of the kingdom of God to stand on the values that matter to the heart of God. Amen? Amen. And so you must know those values if you're going to vote. You must be informed, not ignorant. With ignorance, people, people will perish because of a lack of knowledge, lack of understanding. 
know that there's a great perishing. There are, there are lives that are at stake. There's eternities at stake. There's so much that's at stake. I believe, and I don't know if anyone of you would say, this I believe is the most significant election of my entire lifetime. I didn't say that last time. I haven't, I haven't ever felt that way before, but I feel it so strongly that there's a lot at stake. And therefore, it's our responsibility to know the issues, to know the heart of God, and then to make sure that what we choose to do in this world doesn't violate our citizenship and who God has called us to be as representatives of his. And so I ask you, look to those issues. What are the most important issues? Um, issues of life. Issues are things that we will talk about, not because they're political, but because they're biblical. I believe when I shared with you last week in Psalm 139, he knit us together in our mother's womb. That's when life begins, right? Oh, I'm getting controversial now. These are things that matter so much to the heart of God. And make sure that your values are being shaped by God's word, by nothing else. This will stand the test of time. It has stood the test of time. It's eternal. Amen. Amen. So, Matthew chapter 5. We think, and so how many of you would, sh would just tell me by a show of hands, this has been the most tense political climate that you've ever lived in? You feel it, don't you? You could feel it. It's divisive. It's, it's so much. Uh, it's, it, it's pulling at our nation. It's dividing our nation. It's dividing uh, so many. It's dividing churches. It's dividing the people of God. And I'm just so thankful that Evangel Churches continues to buck the trends. Uh, we just continue. And it's because God's spirit is doing something special in hearts and lives. And we won't pretend that we know what that is or that we're responsible for it to God. God gets all the glory for what's happening in this house. But he's doing something beautiful where he blends us from every tribe, nation, and tongue, backgrounds from all places, and he brings us together as one body. And we're not going to let anything happen in the world divide what God is doing here. But this climate is like something I've never seen before, like you've never seen before. But I want to bring you back now to Matthew chapter 5, where we're going to be this morning, because here's what I want you to know, that there was a socio-political climate that was happening there. And I would venture to say, confidently, that the tension that was mounting in that climate puts this to shame. The tension that was mounting in the time of Jesus was like nothing we have ever seen before. And I will say it will be like nothing we may ever see in our lifetime. It could get multiple times worse than this and it will not hold a flame to what was happening there because here's what was happening. There's a group of people in Israel, the people of God. We talked about them a lot. We've walked through the Old Testament and God was always meant to be their king. He established them as a nation. He had Jerusalem. They were the city on a hill. They were Zion, the holy city, the place where the temple was, the place where God would be worshipped. But by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, by the time we find ourselves here in Matthew chapter 5, it's such a different world. In fact, a whole nother government, a whole nother empire has come and taken over that whole land. The Roman Empire was occupying and controlling the land that God had said, this is my people's. And they had taken it into captivity. And so although they were freed from exile, if you read about in the Old Testament, they weren't free from Roman rule. And so they're under this oppressive government. In fact, it so violated their freedoms that God's word says, you only worship one God, you have no other gods before me. By the time the Roman Empire comes through, they say, hey, this right here, this is Caesar, this is your emperor, and he is the son of God, and he must be worshipped. Did you know that the Roman Empire, they were, those that stood as emperors, they were actually worshipped, some of them. 
because they believed that they were the children of God, the son of God. And they would say, you now need to worship us. And so there's all this tension mounting. And in fact, the Jewish people had to get excluded from many of those things. And they didn't have to worship because of this. So there's so much tension, so many political groups coming together, pressing for their values. And there's this group of Jewish people that are waiting. They're waiting for a Messiah to come. They're waiting for their leader. They're waiting for the promised one to come. Because he said, when he comes, when our king, our soon coming king is here, he's going to set everything right. He's going to set us free. He's going to bring us freedom. He's going to throw these chains off of us that have been binding us. He's going to give us and establish God's true kingdom. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. And you got people that are ready to take up arms and follow him. On Palm Sunday, the reason they're screaming, Hosanna, save us, is because they're thinking a war is about to break out. And we're ready. People flooded the streets of Jerusalem. As Jesus entered in, they're like, this is his inauguration day. This is a day when he's going to come in. He's going to march right up to the emperor. He's going to throw him off the throne. He's going to establish himself. And his throne will be reestablished. So Jesus comes into this tense climate. And he comes. And the words that's being used is Messiah. This coming king, this leader that's going to come and set the people free. And Jesus, everywhere he goes, as he's talking, it's like he has his stump speech, right? He has his, his speech that's being said. He begins to declare. He walks into, in Luke chapter 4, into a synagogue. He opens up a scroll from Isaiah. He said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to bring good news. Just like the political leaders will say, I got good news. You're going to love it. You're going to love what I'm going to do. Wait till you see what it's going to look like in just a short time. Jesus, didn't he say the same thing? He came in, he said, has anointed me to bring good news to those who mourn, to bring release to the captives, to proclaim the good year, the favorable year of our Lord, to comfort those who mourn, to release those who are oppressed. Jesus comes, he says, I'm going to bring sight to the blind. The lame are going to walk. Even the dead are going to rise. I mean, like, these are the things he's saying and doing, mind you. And he's doing all these things. So all these people are gathering like, okay, it's about to go down. We're going to take this thing over. We're going for it. We're taking over everything. And so thousands of people start to get around Jesus. I, I think we think it's like this, you know, the way we saw it in the movies where a Swedish Jesus comes up onto the hillside and all these people, oh, I wonder what's going on. Like, no, it's like people are there. It's tense in this moment. And they all sit down. And Jesus gets up for his greatest address that he'd ever give. The greatest, I mean, you think Gettysburg Address. You think the greatest times whenever a group of people have been addressed at a pivotal moment in time, Matthew chapter 5 is it for the kingdom of God and for Jesus. The most significant words that he had to say. He speaks clearly. In the same way that a, that a politician is going to get up and they're going to paint a picture of what it's going to look like. If that vision becomes a reality, Jesus came and said the same thing. This is what it looks like. Do you know what Jesus' slogan was? Kingdom come. <laughs> I'm going to bring heaven to earth. That's what he came to do. That's what he's, I'm going to come to do. This is it. And this is the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is what it's going to look like. And this is how you're going to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. This is how, what your part is going to be. It's funny. No, one, no one's getting up and telling anyone. They're just making a bunch of promises of what, what life's going to be like, how great it's going to be, Jesus comes up and he tells them how they're going to have to live to fit into this new kingdom. Not how he's going to mold a government that's going to shape and, and fit to what they want. But he said, this is what life's going to look like in the kingdom. And he sits them down, I mean, in the midst of all that tension, and here's what he says. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that word mourn, I always thought it was someone that's grieving a loss of a person. But I, I learned this week that it's so much deeper than that. For many, it was those that were mourning over sin and evil in the world. Those that were weeping over the brokenness that was around them. And he just said, God sees it. You're going to be comforted. Have you wept over what you see in the world? What's happening around us? The erosion. Blessed are the gentle, though. And this is where those that are taking up arms, ready to take this thing by force. Blessed are the gentle. They're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Are you hungering for righteousness and thirsting for it? Because then you'll be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful because they're the only ones that are going to receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Come on. They're the only ones that are going to see God. Blessed are the peacemakers because they're going to be called the sons of God, not the divisive ones. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of what? Righteousness. Not for the sake of (laughs) anything else, but righteousness. Because there's the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones that are going to inherit this kingdom. Blessed are those who, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is what Jesus had to say. He sat them all down. Multitudes are sitting there on a mountainside. I was there. I I got to see this very mountainside. I thought it'd be small. It's huge. There's thousands of people that are there. And as Jesus begins to speak to them, that's what he says. This is what the kingdom's going to look like, and this is who's going to inherit it. This is what your life's going to look like if you follow me. And he begins to share these things with them, and he begins to challenge them in every way. And all of this comes to a place of dependence on him. If you depend on me, if you look to me, if you follow me, this is what it's going to be like. And his disciples who had just turned on to following him, they're saying, all right, we're in. But this is what it's going to look like. It's not going to be like anything you've ever seen before. I'm not here to establish a government. I'm here to allow the governments of the world to rest on my shoulders. I'm here to establish a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what Jesus came to show. They thought he was going to come to establish a temporary government order. He said, I'm establishing an eternal kingdom that can't be shaken, that will never break down, that will never be taken away, that will endure forever and ever and ever. And he invites them to be a part of his kingdom. And so as he goes in, he then turns it back to them again. And he says, this is your identity. He goes on the very next verse in verse 13, and here's what Jesus says. You are what? The salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? What kind of speech is this? He goes from flipping everything on its head, and then he says, listen, you're the salt of the earth, and if you're not fulfilling your purpose, you're worthless. If you're not fulfilling your purpose, you're worthless. Someone needs to hear that today. I need to hear that today. If I'm not fulfilling my purpose, then I'm worthless. And he says, you're the salt of the earth. But if if you lose that saltiness, then what good are you? He said, in fact, it'll be trampled underfoot. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He said, this is it. This is, this is us. <laughs> That's you and me. 
And salt, so vitally important for us to understand our identity if we're called to be salt. We are the salt of the earth. And salt has a purpose. You know what it is to be salty. He said if it loses its saltiness, and you say, how can that happen? In fact, one commentator says it like this. To say that salt loses its saltiness is like saying that water lost its wetness. How does that work? It only had one purpose, to be salty. That's if you lose that, then you lost everything. And you can look that way, but you've lost it all. There are two key purposes to the use of salt, especially in Jesus' day still today. You don't want to miss this if you're taking notes. The first is this, that salt was a preservative. It was to preserve. And second, it was to flavor. And I want you to know that the same is true for us today, that we have a purpose that is the same, that it is to preserve and to flavor whatever it is we're applied to and whatever it is that we're touching. That there's meant to be a distinct flavor. It's the flavor of the kingdom of God. And people should see, feel, experience it with every one of their senses when they're around us because of Christ in us, because of the aroma of Christ that goes out from us. So we are the salt of the world. We're meant to flavor. But what stood out so much to me was that it was also a preservative. Do you know what, it, what that would mean? In that day, they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have the means of storing meat and storing things that were perishable. And so when they began to perish, you know what the word really is? They began to literally decay. They began to decay away and spoil. I talked to you a few weeks ago about the state of our national conscience. And I used the word erode, but you know what? The word decay works a lot better. It's been decaying and rotting, right? Things have been decaying away. Things have not been preserved that once were there. And we can look to everyone else, but you know what normally was an issue if something's decaying? There is an absence of salt. There is a a distinct absence of that which was meant to preserve it. So we can look at everyone else, church, but did he say to any leader or anyone else, you are the salt of the world, he said it to us. So we can complain about it or we could realize it and we can repent of it and say, you know what, if things are decaying all around, then is it because there's an absence of salt that isn't preserving as it once did? It's not doing what it once was called and meant to do. And so salt is meant to preserve. It's meant to keep the decay. It's meant to preserve it as is. There are things that are eroding, that are decaying all around us in the world. And I have to say, it seems like it's directly in proportion to the absence of salt, of God's people standing in the places that we once stood, being a witness in the places we once were willing to. As we backed away, you can only expect decay. That's the end result. That's what's going to happen. It's going to spoil. It's going to go south. You'd say it's already there. That's already happening. And you know what else is also missing? The flavor, the unique flavor. You know, when you come to something, you take a bite of it. It's a little bit bland. It's off. Maybe it it even tastes a little funky. Come on, someone's with me, right? You've been there before. You just say, can you pass the salt? Let me just throw some salt on that and see what happens. Some of you, you walk into to, to funky situations, right, in your work. In all these places, you walk into places, you say, this isn't quite right. But have you ever said this? Well, let me just throw a little bit of salt on it and see what happens. Let me, let me just, let me, can you know what we do? We just run from it. 
We just run away. It's like, no, let me just add some salt and see what happens. It changes the flavor. It changes the atmosphere. Some of you, you're, real, you're realizing it. You know, there are some of you that are here. You walk into places in your work that you used to run from, but you sit there, and now they're not talking the way that they talked before. Now when they see you, they're praying. They don't even know why they're praying. They're praying because you were praying. You're changing the atmosphere. You don't even know. You're being salt right where you're at. You're flavoring things. But instead, we get so embarrassed, don't we? we like, oh, you know, yeah, salt is a bold, a bold element. It's meant to flavor, it's meant to stand out. You know what I never say? I never eat some salt and say, oh, this tastes kind of like steak. It doesn't take on the flavor. It adds the flavor. I could say, oh, that tastes like salt. It isn't meant to receive that. It's meant to stand out. It's meant to be bold. And some of you, have you just, have you not received that part of your identity as a child of God? Have you not realized that someone lied to you and said your job is to blend in? Could you imagine if salt's primary job was to blend in, it would be failing miserably. It's meant to be distinct. And some of you just to be willing to walk in that. God's going to give you the power to walk in it, but you've got to be willing to. You've got to be bold enough to say, I'm bold. This is who I am. I'm salt. I'm nothing else. I don't want to be that. Maybe, maybe you're afraid to be that, but that's who you are. Embrace your identity as a child of God, because if not, he's pretty clear. If you're not fulfilling your purpose, it's, it, what's it worth? What is it worth? And so you'd wonder that because we think of salt as sodium chloride. That's just what it is. And it's so potent that we could never imagine you do not have salt that expires. You know that. There's no, I hope you're not throwing away your salt after a couple of years. It doesn't expire. It just lasts. It's going to be salty. And you come back, uh, you come back to that five years from now, it's still going to be salty. It's not going to lose its, like you're thinking, oh man, like do we need to go home because my salt might lose its saltiness? No, it didn't happen in. You could be using your grandpa's salt. It still hasn't lost its saltiness. You have family heirlooms that are passed down. But when it talks about saying, then what's he saying? Well, as I looked into this, it's amazing is that the place they got all their salt from was the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is, in fact, the place where most of the world gets their salt. They got more salt than they know what to do with. But the Dead Sea got its name for a reason. Everything in it is dead because of the high concentration of salt because it takes in all its water from the Sea of Galilee all the way down the Jordan River, but it doesn't let anything out. So it's just a place of stagnation and death. And you, you know, there's another message in it, right? You stay stagnant long enough, death is not far from you. Uh, things will just begin to die that should have life uh, when we're stagnant. And so it becomes so stagnant and the concentration of salt is so, um, is so high there that you literally just float. And it's, it's a weird kind of float. Not like float like you're in a pool. It's like you couldn't touch the ground if you wanted to. It just pushes you back up. And you're just floating there. In fact, I have a picture here of the Sea of Galilee. And you look around the edge and you think, oh, pastor, is this taken at, uh, you know, in the winter time? No, it isn't. What you're seeing, all that white around the edge, that's all salt. In fact, here's a close-up of that. That's salt. In fact, when I was there in Israel a few years back, I took off my shoes. I went to walk in, not realizing I should have had shoes on because as I'm stepping on the salt, some of the crags of the salt are literally piercing the bottom of my feet. And it's weird because the salt is ultimately closing up the wound immediately. <laughs> it was a very weird time uh, as I'm walking in realizing what this salt is kind of doing to me. But salt is just everywhere. And it's just resting there. And here's an even closer picture of it. Just Salt. It's just concentrating and it's just forming into these crystals there and it's just being mined away. But in that place of death and stagnation, something happens to this salt that doesn't happen to our salt. In fact, what happens is all the sodium chloride, all the attributes of the saltiness begin to drain out of it. 
because of how it stagnates in the Dead Sea. And so it is very possible that you actually can get parts of it out and it looks like salt, but it's not salt. It lacks the flavor. It lacks the key attributes of it. And so when Jesus says, if that salt doesn't have a saltiness, you have to just throw it out and trample it underfoot. It has no purpose. And so there's certain things. If you're spending too much time around things that are dead and decaying and stagnating in your life, it is very possible for you and I to begin to become compromised just like some of the salt you'd pull out of the Dead Sea become compromised by these things, become polluted in such a way that it has the appearance of salt but has no, the, none of the power of salt. Are you with me today? That's exactly what could be happening. I think it's, what pl- it's plaguing the church in America today. We can have a lot of songs, a lot of lights, a lot of people, but do we have the distinct power that we are called to have as salt in this world? Or are too many pollutants draining that from us? We gotta allow the Lord to restore it unto us again to restore it unto us. And here it is. We become salt when we're willing to stand. We become salt when we're willing to stand. You are salt everywhere that you go when you're willing to stand in those places that are uncomfortable. When you're willing to stand in places where no one else is standing. When you're willing to stand in places of decay, places of brokenness. When you're willing to stand in places where it's foul and the flavor is off. And what happens is the atmosphere and the flavor of even the room begins to change right around you. But you have to be willing to stand long enough for it to make a difference. It's a bold challenge for each one of us. We are called to be salt. And if we're not fulfilling our purpose, then what is our worth? He said there's no worth to it. Here's what it says in Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Go on, Pastor Rick. Jesus wasn't done there. You got it. You are what? The salt of the earth. Some of you got that. Come on, what are you? Salt. Salt. And when you're willing to stand, and when you're willing to stand in those places, then you're going to fulfill the purpose that Jesus has for you. You don't need to stand even with a megaphone. You just need to stand. To just stand for what's right. To stand for the things that matter to the heart of God. To be uncompromising. You see, that's the thing about salt. It never compromises its flavor. (laughs) It just is what it is, what it is. But Jesus goes on to say, verse 14, you are also the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. He goes on to say here, a city set on a hill can't be hidden. It can't be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Therefore, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are the light of the world. And the world is getting darker and more desperate for light. People are stumbling around all around us in darkness. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Quit hiding it under a basket. A city on a hill gives off so much light. Everyone from all directions would know there's refuge, there's a place, there's hope for me if I'm wandering in the darkness of night. We as a church, we are a city on a hill. If each of us were a candle, when we come together, we're like a light. When I think about it, when we're all concentrated together, I get this picture in my head of a satellite image of, of the United States at night. 
And what you see is you look down and you know what every bit of light is? It's concentrations of people. What if this is what the church looked like spiritually in America again? What if you looked at everywhere there were people gathering together, there was a bright light shining again and you could see it from heaven, you could see it from space. But then we're covering. Oh my goodness, it's so dark, but let's turn out the lights. Let's shut the blinds. No one can see that we have lights on. Here, no, let's shine brightly. I want to tell you what's happened spiritually. And I'm going to ask you to buckle your seatbelts for just a moment. Stay with me here. Let's not miss this. Do not get up because it's about to get very dark in here. So let's do that. Let's kill, let's kill the lights. This is what's happened to us. And this is what Jesus has done for us. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light was dawned. John's gospel says it like this in chapter 1, verse 5 the light shines in the darkness. Let's shine that light, light right over here. And it says, and the darkness couldn't comprehend it. Another translation says the, the darkness could not overpower it. Do you know that the darkness has no ability? Everywhere this light chooses to go, the darkness has no option but to flee. It can't exist. It cannot exist anywhere this light moves. It says, this is just, this is a light, but the true light, John 1, 9, which coming into the world enlightens every man that he was coming. And he came and he walked this earth. And if you're wondering who it was, let's say his name together. Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to the people once more. And he said this, I am the light of the world. You don't have to worry if Jesus was the light of the world. He was who he said he was. No one needed to convince him of it. He said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness. You will have a light that leads to life or the light of life. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, was one of the verse, uh, verses we talked about. You and I, have been rescued by God. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. So here's what happens spiritually. You and I, at some point or another, we are wandering through this life in darkness, in utter darkness. This isn't even complete darkness. But when you're doing that, you don't know where you are. You don't know where to go. That was my life. That might have been your life. And as you're wandering through, something happened to so many of you you crawled into a place where light began to shine around you. And that light was Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And in that moment, you had an encounter with Jesus. The light of the world was shining into your life, rescuing you from darkness and bringing you into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of God, where we find forgiveness, where we find grace, where we find mercy, and where we find purpose. And as we're doing that, and as we're walking, and as we're, we're living, we are meant now to walk with that light. And so that light's going to follow wherever we go. And then Jesus goes on to say something so revolutionary. He didn't just say, I'm the light of the world. He said in front of his disciples, he said, you are the light of the world. 
So what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we have light that we're producing, but that we're reflecting. We're more like the moon. And now, where we go and what we look to, it lights up. It lights up places that have been dark before. So that those that were sitting in darkness can now see what they couldn't see before. There's a light that's shining, that's glowing. And it goes into the darkest places. It can see what no one else was able to see before. And he said this, you are the light of the world. You're meant to shine now. Your life is meant to shine. Your life is meant to be seen by others. But what happens so often is that we, we kind of get very uncomfortable in this place. You know when we get comfortable shining? Whenever all the lights are on, let's hit those lights on. And then, you know, whenever all the lights are on, we're ready. We're taking it out. We're shining all around in church. Oh, isn't this great? All the lights aren't even on yet, but I'm already more comfortable, right? I'm already more ready. It's like we come to church, we come to these places. But you know what? This is Sunday. No, all the lights are up for Sunday. That's Sunday. This is Monday. Let's bring the lights back down. That's Monday. You might be the only one. Are you willing to shine? You might be the only one. But I want you to know there's someone else that's there. And they're sitting right there. And you didn't know they were there. And now that you're shining, they're seeing something that they couldn't see before. And now they're going to find their way home. But you know what? If we're unwilling, if we run out of there, we say, you know, I'm over here and I'm just shining. I'm here for Jesus. 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 We're, we're unwilling, we're uncomfortable in the light. Live in the light. Be in the light as he is in the light, right? Stand in it. Be bold. Be willing to let your light and your life shine out for others. Let's bring the lights up and let's stand to our feet in God's house today. That we're willing to let our light shine in the darkness of this world, that we're willing to let our life shine out so that all the world can see it. Because here's what Jesus promised. He said this. He said, let your light shine in such a way that people are going to see your good deeds. They're going to see your life and how it shines. And what are they going to do? Are they going to be impressed by you? Are they going to lift you up? Are they going to pat you on the back? No, they're going to glorify my Father in heaven. They're going to turn to him because of what is happening in your life. They're going to experience and see God's grace. Here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. It says, each one of us should use whatever gift we have received to serve others. And when we do it, we're being faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Do you realize when you serve someone else, you're shining the light of the kingdom of God into their circumstance, into their life. And you know what comes with that light? The grace of God. Isn't it amazing that the salt and the light both have that idea that what happens when it shines, what happens when we're salt, the grace of God is meeting people in those places. That's our calling. That's our purpose. That's who you and I are called to be. And here's what you need to know, the big idea from today. You are salt when you stand and you shine when you serve. You are salt when you stand and you shine when you serve God, when you're willing to not hide your faith. You know, it's so vitally important that you stay connected to him in the secret place. But some of you, some of you have become what is being known as the silent majority. They think the silent majority is going to decide this election. The silent majority is the group of people in this very election that are unwilling to stand up and to voice publicly who they stand with. And as I heard that, and they said, this is going to be a game changer for this election. It very well may be. I said, that isn't the silent majority. The church is the silent majority. We're the ones that have been for so long 
unwilling to stand up and let it be known again who we stand with and who we stand for and who we shine for. Church, let's not be that silent majority. Let's be a vocal shouting majority of people that are willing to stand as the people of God again, willing to be salt in every area that needs it, willing to be a light shining into the darkness of this world. And as we do it, God will meet us with his grace and with his power and with his mercy. And so today, what does that mean for you? Are you gonna be willing to stand in places you weren't willing to stand before? Have your heart and your life become compromised? that you look like salt, but there are things that God needs to deal with in your heart. Don't leave God's presence today without allowing that to happen. For some of you, are you still walking around in darkness? Have you not come to Jesus? We said that prayer earlier, and we'll be up here at the altars at the end to say it again. But for you and I, we have to be willing at this critical hour to stand as salt and to shine through our service, through the way we live our lives. They're not looking to our words. They're not looking to our church attendance. They're not looking at anything. They're looking at your life and they're gonna know you're a follower of Jesus by the way you love and serve, by the way you live your life out loud before Jesus. So be bold, shine brightly in the dark places and God's gonna meet us by his grace. Amen? Amen. God is good. I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to go right into a time of worship here. Lord Jesus, we come before you, and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you, Lord God, that you still move mountains. We thank you that your promise still stands. Lord God, we thank you that if we, your people, humble ourselves and pray and seek your face again, then you'll heal our land. You will restore us, Lord God. You will forgive our sins, and you will use us to be the light and the salt that you've called us to be again, Lord God. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your promise. Lord, we pray today this word goes deep into our hearts and that we leave here changed in Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' name we said amen and amen. Let's worship the Lord together.